Welcome to Reimagining Liberty, a podcast about the emancipatory and cosmopolitan case for radical political, social, and economic freedom. I'm Aaron Ross Powell. On the one hand, it seems like everyone today is calling everyone else a fascist. On the other, genuine fascism is clearly on the rise, and fascist ideas have found increasing purchase, even mainstream purchase, on the right. Taken together, these two statements mean that not only should we be serious about the work of combating fascism, but we also need to be very clear on what it is and what it isn't. To help work through these important questions, I'm joined today by Shane Burley. He's a writer and filmmaker based in Portland, Oregon, and is the author of Why We Fight, Essays on Fascism, Resistance, and Surviving the Apocalypse, and Fascism Today, What It Is and How to End It. Your book is about fascism, which is a term that has, I think, especially over the course of the Trump years, been increasingly hurled about. It seems like everybody calls everyone that they disagree with in the political sphere a fascist nowadays, which has led to a unwillingness to recognize anything as fascism. So before we dig into the contemporary scene and the way that fascism plays out in the American right, let's define our terms. What does it mean for someone to be a fascist? Yeah, so in in my book, I, I define fascism along two primary temples, the first being a, a belief in human inequality, um, and the second being um uh, essentialized identity, how I frame as essentialized identity. So identities that sort of choose you, not identities you choose, ones that are sort of um, eternal and transcendent, um, that create sort of quote unquote essences uh, that are beyond just their sort of um, quantifications or, or, or abilities to quantify them. And then you kind of mix in a few other characters, some of which are secondary, some of which are just kind of temporally necessary. So, um, for example, fascism is a modern movement. Um, it's one that claims to reclaim um, the sort of standard bearers of the pre-Enlightenment era. So they would say that this is actually how human beings normally stratify. They normally have these essentialized identities and they normally create social stratification out of them. And that the Enlightenment sort of destroyed that with its sort of decadent modernity that that dispelled people's kind of natural folkish consciousness. So, but the reality is that this is a very modern movement, right? It's not actually reclaiming an eternal past, right? It's actually just sort of uh, revolting against that. And you can only have a fascist movement in the modern political sense. It requires, for example, mass political organization, populism, right? You can't really do have that in an era before there's mass participation in politics. So those are fundamentally different things. So to have a fascist movement, the way that we describe it has to be in the modern context. Um, it's necessarily revolutionary. So revolutionary, if we think kind of the, the, the core of what a revolutionary or radical uh, movement is, it's one that tears the fundamental roots apart of a social system. And their argument being is that enlightenment liberalism has certain precepts, for example, human equality and cosmopolitanism that they have to undo. So it's a necessarily revolutionary project. I think the left takes issue with this oftentimes because fascism makes explicit what we see implicit in society. But at the same token, fascists see certain trends towards enlightenment liberalism 
you know, um, individualism and so on. They take issue with that too. So that that's a revolutionary project in that way. Um, part of that is the culture of immediacy. I put this as a secondary characteristic, but the focus on violence, um, violence, not just as a tactic or as a solution to problems, but as a way of creating political identity and embodying a kind of contra way of doing politics and doing social organization. So the way that we define that is somewhat narrow, um, right? It doesn't actually, um, uh, track with what a lot of people use it to mean. The term is often used to mean authoritarian, um, or it's, or it's used to mean just bluntly racist, which is not a good use of the term either. Um, it's used to mean sort of, um, you know, maybe like one particular characteristic that someone thinks is really important, like the attack on democracy, right? Fascists are critical of democracy because they believe again in this sort of stratification. And if you have a stratification, the mass participation in a horizontal way wouldn't make sense, right? Some people are better than others. So why would everyone have a say in it? But that's not reducible to just that one thing. We can't just say like, for example, the attack on voting rights is necessarily fascist. So I think this comes out of what's often called the new consensus tradition in contemporary fascism studies. Um, so particularly Roger Griffin and uh, Ziv Sternhell um, and, the, uh, and a number of other historians and, and that look at fascism across different cultures and times as having a certain kind of common baseline. And so that's what we try and boil down those. So for example, I don't mention nationalism or racism in the definition of fascism because there are forms of fascism, though in the minority, that focus on different metrics. So, for example, Hindu, um, Hindu nationalism that has a slightly different sense of itself than white nationalism does, right? Uh, but they both carry that, that essential core. So I think when we're talking about a fascist movement, we have to talk about it in this kind of modern reactionary revolutionary model um, which necessarily leaves out a lot of the right, the modern right, which sees itself as a standard bearer of the Enlightenment project. And it's not willing to question those underlying assumptions of Enlightenment liberalism. There's a lot to unpack there. Um, and let me start that unpacking by going back to one of the, the first things you mentioned, which was inequality and in identity. Uh, because I can imagine someone who hears you say that that central to fascist ideology is a belief in inequality and that people are are different in these essential ways and um, and that that ties into identity an essential identity and think, oh, so is identity politics a form of fascism and identity politics in the way that it's typically gets described as being a, a a thing of the left, right? Like um, that we have. So the way that the right characterizes intersectionality or critical race theory as being about essential identities and then differences. Um, are those are those distinct? Is there do you mean something, I guess, different by identity when we're talking about fascism than when we're talking about what gets labeled as identity politics? Yeah, we're talking about fundamentally different things. I think what what fascists do, um, and I, this is, I think, another kind of ubiquitous quality is that they will use not just the rhetoric of the left. I think people understand this as disingenuous, but they'll actually use the sort of functional strategic lessons of the left for their own purposes and try and find ways of using the same language to mean fundamentally different things. So they carry the same words with them. So for example, you hear white nationalists talk about national liberation a lot. Now they're not, you know, 
joining the Algerian independence movement and, and, and participating in it. But what they see is the language of national liberation and even sort of the superficial support of non-white national liberation movements sort of like lends them a sense of credibility if they can re-spin it that way. So when we're talking about identity politics on the left, we're talking about, you know, specifically the work of people like Kimberly Crenshaw that, that were socialists first off, right? And so there's an inherent sense of, of, of human equality there. And the identity politics is about looking at fulcrums of oppression and seeing within them the contradictions that can be used to organize. So if we think about like in a classic Marxist sense, you know, someone, capitalism develops and it creates this new subjectivity, right? Through the wage relationship, you have workers. And so workers are hyper-exploited by bosses who own the means of production, right? Like kind of basic kind of Marxist read of it. But within that, there is a contradiction, right? Those workers can withhold their labor. And all of a sudden, they have the ability to take the power back and flip down on its head. And if that was taken to its logical conclusion, it becomes a revolutionary process that brings about something new, socialism. When you think about this, actually, in terms of intersectionality, which is the ways that different people experience different systems of oppression, right? Intersectionality, the term really talks about a lot of individual experiences, right? It doesn't necessarily talk about systems, but it implies the systematality of this. So we're talking about race, we're talking about gender, sexual rotation that are then forced by existing cultures, but then very explicitly by the far right as having that stratification of them. But those make them, because of the contradictions, points of struggle, right? So we acknowledge that, for example, economic solutions will not necessarily undo white supremacy, right? Those things actually happen to have to happen simultaneously. So we need a larger theory of it. And people have to struggle around those identities. There's a, there's a couple of really key things, though, that I think are important when we're talking about intersectionality. And we're talking about identity in this way is that identity is not the same as oppression in all cases. You know, I am Jewish. I don't think I am Jewish because anti-Semitism exists, right? I'm Jewish because I do Jewish things, right? And that has value on its own, completely separate. You get rid of anti-Semitism, I continue to be Jewish, right? Um, and there's a lot of like those celebrations that happen, some of which, um, for example, like celebrations of black identity and culture are a form of resistance, right? Those were erased. And so this is actually cultural struggle. And some of them are just you know, great things that people want to have in their lives. And so when we're talking about the struggle around that, we're talking specifically about the struggle around those identities facing oppression, not those identities as autonomous units, then struggling for hegemony versus white identity politics which is about reifying the struggle for identity groups as autonomous agents outside of basically equalizing. So what white nationalists want to do is say, yeah, great, you're engaging identity politics, you're fighting for your people. How great is that? Let's all return to a place where we fight for our people. But that's actually not what's happening, right? So black folks fighting and using, quote unquote, the phrase identity politics are actually fighting for the eradication of white supremacy um, and not just, for example, like black hegemony or, you know, like black nationalism doesn't just extend in most cases to, you know, now it's like a fight for black dominance or something like that. So I think that's important to kind of separate those things. But this is a, the lap, the left. The liberal left does a pretty poor job unpacking what those sorts of terms mean and how they would be applied, particularly in an organizing context. And. What the far right does is not just critiques the left's failures, it is a critique of the left's failures. So when the left fails to explain identity politics or fails to talk about intersectionality in a way that's actually useful to people, the right is able to then take those kind of that bad interpretation, which becomes pretty common, and then to flip it on its head, right, and use it. So it's say, okay, yeah, yeah, we're going to engage in identity politics. We're all engaging in identity politics now. And because they're, you know, they have the ability to create you know, have a large recruiting base, basically the, the majority of white workers, 
So they're able to get a lot of people then to think in terms of identity politics, but their identity politics, not the way in which it was originally formulated. So I think we should separate that as much as possible. It's also a certain, and I guess in a certain sense, a warning that like straight identity is not a sufficient grounds from which to organize, right? Like you actually have to be cross identity. You have to find those commonalities. We're talking about the large majority of people have to be involved if you want to change society in a really positive way. So I think in that way, it's a it kind of an implicit warning. Um, but I think it's important to separate and say those things are just fundamentally not, not commiserate with one another. Is this how we get then the kind of the left or the real fascists sort of idea that is common on among a lot of the right, not even the fascist right, but just conservatives. I'm thinking of, I don't know, maybe 20 years ago, Jonah Goldberg wrote a book called Liberal Fascism that seemed to be um, discovering that Hitler was a vegetarian, therefore the left were the real fascists. But but that sort of thing does seem to be a pretty common view. And is that, I guess one way to ask this question is, is that sort of stuff a conscious co-opting of leftist terminology or beliefs in order to make fascism more palatable, say? Um, Or is there something in those kinds of beliefs that can lead someone in this direction in the way that we see, like, the, the wellness community, like the yoga moms to QAnon sort of pipeline? I think that there is something inherent in their ideological predilections that leads them to understand politics this way. So like Jonah Goldberg's a good example. The the Goldberg analysis, if you can call it that. And also I should say Jonah Goldberg's very embarrassing. <laughs> like this is not we're not talking about like great intellects here. Um but the argument is basically one about it's like a libertarian argument about social intervention. You know, uh, the fundamental core of fascism is its sense of social control and liberals with their welfare state and their, you know, PC culture and stuff. They also want social control. So it's fundamentally the same thing. And then what they'll pull at, you know, a lot of what fascism does is it, it creates a critique of anti of capitalism. It has a sort of anti-capitalism in it. And it also has a social welfare component. You know, national socialism is socialism of a particular nationality, right? It's a preferencing using redistribution and welfare state tactics a lot of times. Um, and so they'll argue that, you know, okay, well, they have a welfare state and that's what the liberals want. So it must be fundamentally the same thing. It's just very, very like, smooth brain thinking, you know, but that's sort of where it kind of leads to. I think most commonly, though, the liberal, the, the, the liberals are the real fascists right now comes from that sense that they are actually authoritarian. It also comes from the idea that the fundamental core predilection of fascism is the destruction of free speech and therefore liberals are engaging in a project of destroying free speech. Now, we talk about in the book, you know, the concept of free speech is one that's about state intervention in speech. It's not about whether or not Everyone has access to speech. I don't have access to speech. I don't get to just, you know, write on the front page of the New York Times anytime I want. Um, so that's not what you're promised in free speech. I'm also not, you know, able to go on a street corner, yell racial slurs and have no one be offended and try and stop me. Right. Like I'm not like owed that. Um, and so this isn't an issue of free speech at all. Um, but I think what's happening is that because, you know, Basically, the privilege to say and do whatever you want is understood by a lot of these folks as being like the fundamental kind of core democratic feature. Um, and I would point out that to do those, that their, their belief about that is to do it without consequences. So that feels like it's impending on them 
very severely, and then that must be where where fascism is coming from. And again, this is also part of the long history of anti-communist conspiracy theories and the kind of rhetoric, particularly entering into the early Cold War and after World War II, of flattening the differences between authoritarian uh, ideologies. So, you know, Stalinist state communism on the one side and fascists on the other as being sort of two sides of the same coin. And so it's a sort of uh, U.S. against totalitarianism. It's a kind of a, a, a fetishization of American capitalist democracy um, in kind of almost like Francis Fukuyama's sense of this being sort of like the the obvious and sort of eternal pathway to liberation. And so these other things are sort of commiserate with one another. And so that's that flattening is about creating a new binary between, you know, the capitalist West and, you know, the second world and the fascist world and these sort of like other institutions. So it does have within it a certain critique. Um, it's kind of a stupid one, but it does have coherence to it. You said earlier that fascism is not, it sometimes gets used as a synonym for authoritarianism and that that's not correct. What is the relationship between fascist ideology and state control um, and increasing state control? Uh, because I'm thinking about, so Josh Hammer, the, I think he's still the, the editor of Newsweek's opinion section and is like an ultra far right national conservative. Um, and I think is in line with a lot of what we're talking about. He has explicitly said that he sees like the aim of politics is basically to reward your friends and punish your enemies. Um, and, and that he draws these lines, I think in ways that are analogous to what we've been talking about. Um, but on the other end, you have say people in anarcho-capitalist circles. So they're, they're anarchists, um, but have a lot of the, you know, the problem with government is that it doesn't allow me to discriminate against groups. Like I want my little white nationalist enclave, or it wouldn't be nationalism because we wouldn't have nations in an anarchist, but right. Like I want my little white community um, and the state has anti-discrimination laws and all these other things. And so it's basically not allowing me to discriminate, but if we had perfect private property, I would be allowed to exclude based on whatever categories I see fit. Um, and those are both, so one is like authoritarian one is at least from a state sense not authoritarian but they both seem to share this underlying like this is the world we're aiming at i think it's important to decenter the state in these discourses you know so i i think people could point out so like the, the, i i have argued another and i think in my last book um that fascism doesn't depend on the permanence of the state in fact the state is ancillary um that may be um, a distinction without a difference since most fascist movements we can consider have either looked for state power or they've conceived of themselves as being something that can produce state power or state hegemony or state stability. Um, but that's not necessarily the case. Um, and if you look at especially how I def define fascism, but how other people do as well, there is ways of conceiving this outside of the modern state. So if you have take those two examples, you have you have on the one hand people using that state control, and I think the analogy um, the Newsweek editor who's basically using kind of a distinction made by Carl Schmidt, the Nazi jurist, you know, of the friend enemy distinction. 
you do not necessarily need a what we understand as a modern state to accomplish that. You can have other institutions, right? Like there are many conceivable ways of organizing society. They don't just mirror the modern state. And on the other hand, you have the, the anarcho-capitalist, which I would say is also equally authoritarian. Um, it just doesn't depend on the state to enact those sorts of authorities. It depends on different forms of coercion. So in this way, you know, private militaries uh, would end up being uh, what anarcho-capitalists tend to describe ends up looking more like a feudal situation where people are kind of like nobles that own property. And then they have these kind of like, you know, these, um, you know, MLM style <laughs> like downturns. So I think like we should stop assuming that the sort of hegemony of state control is how fascism necessarily plays itself out. One of the problems is, is that, a lot of this early fascist writing was written when responding to rather primitive states. Like we didn't, you know, um, uh, Italian fascism is not a very sophisticated state system. Nazi Germany wasn't even actually a very sophisticated state. So, I mean, none of them come close to what we have in modern America, you know, in terms of the ability to do surveillance and to enact, you know, uh, like sweeping kind of law enforcement or to incarcerate people. So I think instead we have to think about this more about an approach to society and communities and that might be involved a state. It might involve some other kind of uh, concept. And actually it might involve a combination of the two. And you think about like the Nazi party is a really good example, you know, that where various party functionaries, which are not necessarily always considered part of the state, have really active roles in society, autonomous roles, have the ability to enact violence, um, up to and including genocide. So I think we need to start decouple this a little bit. And it, the problem I think people have with this is that it becomes almost hopelessly theoretical at that point. What are we talking about? And people really want to ground this with modern politics. And I think that's a problem because what we're doing is um, trying to look for practicals in a situation where the practicals have never existed. We don't have modern fascist states in the way that Nazi Germany was a fascist state. We don't have them fascist movements responding with overwhelming control to modern states. We have um, kind of far-right parties moving into power or having partial power. There's different versions of it. But we can't, I think, make such tactile predictions about how the state will look um, because we have to sort of adapt to where modern politics is at. We can make sort of assumptions about how people might use the state or how they might go outside the state. But by just centering the state in our analysis of fascism, we end up, I think, s focusing on one version of far-right kind of entryism in the politics, and we avoid many, many others. And we also negate the revolutionary potential, which actually literally might involve them smashing the state and rebuilding a new state or a counter-institution. Is it fair to characterize Trump and kind of the hard edge of Trumpism as fascist or fascist adjacent? I mean, maybe fascist adjacent. I think it, it's a little hard to go full, the argument about full fascism. I think, but also this may be irrelevant because I think what ends up happening is people move in and out of these ideological predilections, we don't want to use the ideal type as the analysis for all fascism. So let's take something like Richard Spencer. Richard Spencer is a fascist ideologically. I don't even know that he would disagree with that kind of description, right? Like you can look through his well thought out ideologies, very, you know, spent a lot of time on this. Those are fascist ideas. There's a whole intellectual tradition. He's a part of it. Now, is Trump the same way? No. But could he participate in a fascist movement? Yeah, absolutely. And I think actually most people would engage in that way and they would respond to certain impulses. And if we look at the development of actual fascist states, 
and I'm thinking sort of like the, the Pax analysis, you actually see the role of ideological fascists with the rest of the broader right that ends up taking on their modalities, maybe without buying them in their entirety. Um, so I think it's it's fair to see the, the, the MAGA movement as having fascist potential or being a proto-fascist movement and including fascists and having the ability of developing the full four-thirded fascism in the state form if they had like a sufficient power. But I don't, I think the debates over like what qualifies and what doesn't end up sort of missing the point. I think we can place it onto the continuum and think about modern fascism with the MAGA movement as being the most prescient example of a large scale, um, congruent political movement to the way we use that term. How does that play into the, the history of these movements? say, in the American context, because when when Trump first came to, like, prominence, right, he, so he was running and then he became the nominee and then became the president, there were a lot of, in, in the mainstream press, there was a lot of analysis of, especially when he would say things that I think were definitely pushing in that direction of looking fascism adjacent. Um, and, and you get, like, really ugly stuff coming out of mega rallies and so on, there was a lot of like, where did this come from sort of analysis? This, this seems to be this new, this brand new thing that came out of nowhere. This has, you know, this isn't what the American right was. The American right was the kind of classical liberalism of a Reagan or something like that, right? Um, does that analysis like miss the point? Because I think one of the interesting things in your book is not just how many of these fascist movements there are in the United States, in the weird tributaries of political culture and the internet and so on, um, but their history. And and so what is, I guess, to make a long question, hopefully shorter, uh, what is the relationship between all of those movements and their history and then what we suddenly kind of saw in in the political mainstream in – 2015, 2016, and and onwards. I mean, there was a great book that came out this last year uh, called The Far Right Vanguard by John S. Huntington that talked about the role of the far right adjacent to the electorally focused conservative movement. The, 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 the point being is that there always was a far right that was at the core of modern conservatism, basically, you know, post-1950s um, uh, National Review-style republicanism. Um, and that, you know, you see that in kind of the, um, the Goldwater campaign, you see it in a, a number of other kind of these vanguard moments, but that the far right was always sort of like baked in there. I think that's fundamentally true is that the far right has always been at the core of, uh, conservative politics. Um, they just often haven't been, uh, able to kind of publicly self-identify those trends, um, so, for example, we can see kind of the attack on the welfare state very clearly. And I don't think anyone that looks at this would disagree that that's a, a racist attack fundamentally, right? Like this is about going after communities of color at the same time as sort of um, increasing profits for corporations, right? It's like a kind of very basic analysis on that. But that requires a certain kind of nationalist far-right politics that underlies it, right, for that to actually work. And so I think that's what the, the far-right vanguard, as Huntington kind of labels it, has always worked on. And so this has always been an adjunct to the conservative movement. 
Uh, and there's several generations of this and they'll pick up on certain kind of wedge pieces that help bridge the, the kind of vanguard with the more moderates. So, you know, whether it's, you know, fighting, uh, desegregation, you know, that was like a great wedge issue for them or. If it was, you know, going after busing and uh, other forms of integration and affirmative action, if it was the paleocons in, in the 80s and early 90s, there's different versions of this. What's different now is that that sort of version, that that kind of point at which the far right meets the larger right base actually had started to have a much more profound effect on its base and was able to grow its audience in that way. And there's a few factors for that. I think one is the availability and ubiquity of conspiracy theories allowed that flow back and forth to occur much more effectively. I think that it's the consequence of about 30 years of kind of talk radio style conservative speech that has actually changed the electorate really profoundly. Um, I don't think that this actually signals anything foundationally different about the American project. I think, again, we're talking about implicit conditions becoming explicit, right? So like we just said, this is how the party thought. Like, this is how they thought about racial issues. That's how they thought about a lot of issues. It's just simply that that has become more explicit and that they're able to convince people and by speaking not just through dog whistles, but through like a more direct kind of rhetoric. There's a couple of other really key things, though. One is that libertarianism has become untenable on its own terms for most of the Republican electorate. Basically, people want a class politics, so they want them to signal a politics of, of capitalism's decline. Now, they often still use the language of libertarianism. That's, that's still the case. But what national conservatism, which is sort of what's taking over the base of the Republican Party, the, the kind of energy of the Republican Party, is that they're speaking a sort of economic populist language um, and economic protectionism. They're basically what they're doing now is successfully speaking to the working class. Obviously, I think we'd agree that that's a false lesson. It's not going to get them you know, to a better life or anything, but they are now speaking to that. So that's part of it. And I think national conservative politics have the ability to speak to people who are now, you know, uh, entering 20 to the 2020s in a really economically precarious situation. So I think that's, that's part of it. In the 1990s, you could have a libertarian energy and with the perpetual growth of the economy uh, before the dot-com bubble and stuff. People kind of bought that lesson, but they're not buying it anymore. Um, the other thing is that the, the Republican Party has found that racial issues are going to continue to be their sort of wedge for quite a while. Um, and I talk about at the beginning of that book that Richard Spencer did a press conference years ago about what he called the majority strategy, which is basically that since the Republican Party is the party de facto of white people, it should just explicitly be the party of white people. So what it should do is try to most effectively engage white voters and just kind of dispel everybody else and take all the energy that's not working to get minority votes and just pump it into white identity. And that's essentially what they did. Right. And that turned out to be sort of successful in a way. So I think all those factors are sort of playing together in this. Um, and, but it's unstable. It's necessarily unstable. And I think the MAGA movement in general, because it hinges so, uh, uh, so heavily on kind of over the wall conspiracy theories, really outlandish conspiracy theories, it's re it creates a lot of structural instability because they're never actually making an ideological case for anything. The national conservatives are trying to stabilize that. And if they're successful in stabilizing that, that will become the centerpiece of the new Republican Party's identity. And that's likely how it will become. And you'll see those two things pace out, uh, play out in the major contest in the next election, right? The MAGA side will be Trump. 
the national conservative side will be DeSantis, and that will be sort of the debate about how that's going to play out. Um, and so I think going forward, as we see things like increased migration because of ecological catastrophe, the increase of economic inequality and the instability of the economy, the increase of precarious workforce, you know, deindustrialization, attacks on labor unions, things like that. As long as that accelerates, then the national conservative argument for itself will become the centerpiece argument because it's one that at least tries to address or at least acknowledges the economic precarity of white workers. You've mentioned class a couple of times and you mentioned populism earlier on in the conversation. And so I'm curious about the relationship between fascist ideology and class because Trumpism was, and I mean, right now it seems to be like a largely white working class ideology, if we can call Trumpism an ideology, that is based around status. A lot of it is based around status anxiety, class-based status anxiety, and then that gets tied into like race-based status anxiety. But the the national conservatives are much more of an elite, you know, Josh Hawley and it's Adrian Vermeule and it's all these like people at either attended very elite institutions, come from very elite backgrounds, are professors at very elite institutions, are at, you know, the editorial page of Newsweek. Newsweek's not as elite as it used to be, but it still is, you know, a major publication. Um, is there a – is fascism primarily a working class movement or can it be – an elite movement, or is it sometimes seems it seems like elites are kind of just using the working class, manipulating the working class in order to advance what is not necessarily a working class agenda? Yeah, I mean, I think that that describes it. Um, I think that the, the majority of a fascist movement depends on the working class participating. Um, and historically, you see basically ruling class people using fascism as sort of a way of ducking out of the accountability called for them by the left. You know, so communist movement grows, communist party grows in response to wealth inequality. So they offer up fascism, which claims to be, you know, a, a project of equalizing the class differences of whites um, as a way that to spell that, that anger and it basically keeps them in power. So there's like a, a vested self-interest in that. So it does, there's, it does uh, have an element of coming from the, the top, but it does, its constituency does end up being primarily from the working class. And I, I think, you know, there's a lot of like rhetoric about how the Trump movement is not actually of the working class because there's all these like middle managers or small business people. I think that we need to think about this in the more broad horizontal sense, you know, the working class being the non-rich, right? Like it, there's a, a kind of, and also um, culturally and in a not directly economic way, we're talking, talking about certain cultural sectors, you know, rural areas, people identify with blue collar work, even if they're managers, like that, there's a certain kind of like culture there. And I think you're right also about the loss of status. I, what people I think sometimes mistake when we're talking about class politics is they talk about it as an objective phenomenon. These people are working class. These people are not working class, that kind of thing. Um, you know, they, these people are, are offering to cut your economic benefits. These people are offering to give you more. I don't think that that's how it's actually experienced by people. I think it's much more subjective. So class is often understood as status. You know, for example, I don't feel bad about how much money I make till I go on Facebook and see that people I went to high school with make more than me, right? Like this is a very common experience, right? And I think that we're talking about people making emotional decisions. Um, so we can't think about this in just class terms. It's obvious. Okay, well, you know, if we're talking about working class people about to enter the retirement and we're you're they're voting for people that are about to, you know, block 
draw grant you know medicaid and stuff i mean that's going to be destructive to them but that's not the message they're actually getting you know they're getting a much 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 different message and so we need to sort of deal with this in the way that people deal with those subjectivities and this also gets to to how they understand populism i I don't think that right-wing populism will solve people's economic problems i don't think there's any evidence to believe that that would be the case but populism is the language people use to talk about socialism. It's how they internalize, naturalize their impulse towards class struggle. Class struggle is not something that people choose to engage in. They just engage in it. When you go to work, you're engaging in class struggle. You try and work as less as you can, um, even though your boss wants you to work as much as you can. You try and fight for a better income. You do different ways of, 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 of dealing with that, some that are effective, some that are not effective. But what's happening here in populism is that people are sort of giving in to that impulse. Um, they're just also at the same time bringing a lot of the baggage they come in with everywhere all, that they come in with already, primarily racial baggage uh, or conspiracy thinking, and they allow that to, to help drive their decisions in this class struggle. So I, I think like it's it's really easy, I think, for us to kind of look at the absurdities, the factual inaccuracies, of a lot of these movements, but we're actually talking about how very real conditions are experienced subjectively. What is the role of, I guess, call them personality cults in, in fascism? Because we had, you know, Hitler was a personality cult. Mussolini was a personality cult. A lot of Trumpism and particularly the parts of it that shade the most into fascism or fascism adjacent seem very much a personality cult. And I know that at least several definitions of fascism include an element of a strong personality who claims to embody the identity of the Volk and then represent them and kind of assert their will at, at the national level, which again, seems to describe at least these three characters and some of the like ultra far right populist leaders we're seeing around the world. Is that fundamental to fascist movements, like some embodying personality? I would say it's likely fundamental, though you can easily find instances uh, that might challenge that that universality. Um, And Part, one thing that's important for far-right movements and how they conceive of themselves is that using a sort of idealist model for social change. You know, we want people to embody the heroism that sort of makes emotionally salient the points that they want to make. So if the argument is about strength and violence, why not have a leader that rules through strength and violence? Um, particularly if he's one of yours, right? If he's going to engage in strength and violence for you. Um, and that then transmutes to the culture um, of people who are going to participate in this project. They're also going to engage likewise. Right. Um, so, like you said, like with Hitler had a certain like political kind of uh, not just rhetoric, but kind of sensibility about it that was then, you know, played out in the essay. So I think like that's an important piece of it. It's an important piece, I think, of a of a lot of these successful movements, people emotionally tend to connect with an individual. It's a lot easier to have Bernie Sanders than it is to have like, the kind of less, I don't know, um, identifiable socialist movement. I think that that actually does does a lot for people. Um, I would, I would hesitate, I think to give it the stamp of universality though, but I do think that this is generally what we're going to be wrangling with. But the other thing is that we're talking about a very disaffected movement. I mean, large portions of the far right really dislike Trump. 
you know, really huge portions of the far right. So I, I think that like, and, and I think we can still call them in a fascist project with people who also support Trump. So I don't think that we can say necessarily that, that, that there is this, this, this concept of a singular unif- ruler that unifies the movement. If they were to unify the movement, then they probably would be more successful. Um, so that could be a, a, a sign of their sort of strength. Um, and Trump had the capacity to do that in a way that other people did not. Like Ron DeSantis will not empower the neo-Nazis in the way that uh, Trump empowered neo-Nazis, right? It just simply will not play out that way. So I, I, I think that it would be curious to see how that heroism plays out in the future. I think, but just as well, I think myths of people of the past play an important role too. I think past mythologies and individuals are just as central to fascist projects. Why does there seem to be such an unwillingness to grapple with this stuff among, I guess, call it the political mainstream in in the sense that – so we talked about how they kind of all were like this came out of nowhere, even though a lot of this had been present for a long time among the American right. But there also is a, a dismissiveness of even like the kind of talk that we're having today as it's one thing to talk about fascism in a historical sense. Um, and to, to draw up your little narrow definitions and so on. But if you start talking about either genuine fascist movements, particularly within Western democracies, or you start talking about fascist elements of maybe like non-fully fascist movements within Western democracies, you're engaging in a degree of histrionics, you're being fundamentally unserious, you're being unfair, and so on. Um, and and the worry that I have is that as we see these movements gain more and more traction, they need to be combated. Um, and part of combating them, part of pushing back against them is is acknowledging them. But there just seems to be this real digging in among like the professional commentariat, say, among journalists, among mainstream politicians to – grapple with it I, mean, I think there's a few reasons i mean one is that most of that class of folks simply aren't qualified to talk about it i i think like that's part of the issue is that i, I there i've seen like a, it's been a good decade of these op-eds now that uh, people talk very confidently about <laughs> movements they haven't studied um and and don't seem to have a sense of how to con- how to to discuss them in a contemporary context. I think part of it is that to acknowledge what's happening is to acknowledge that the sort of um, brief moments of democratic stability were simply brief moments um, and that that's actually out of context for most of history. Um, and that immediately places us into a revolutionary context where the entire system of state and economy is really fallible and can fall apart. Um, I think also we need to acknowledge that this emerges from within our democracy, that there's something flawed here um, and that we cannot rely on the state to protect itself or to protect us. That is not the role of it. I think it is incredible hubris for largely white men to, to, to talk about it seeming like it came from nowhere when there is, you know, there was an unbroken chain of folks of color talking about this is a problem. This is growing. This is an ever present part of our lives. Um, and so I think that that right there is sort of like a, a challenge to change perspective. It would require completely shifting how they understand the world and people don't want to 
participate in that. I think it would be, um, I think it's also that people sort of have bought the hype from a lot of right-wing commentary. Um, people don't understand how anti-fascism works. They don't understand how social movements work. They don't care to. Um, and so I think all of that is involved. I think also though, like there's a lot of hyperbole when we talk about this. Um, and I think a lot of very unserious people have talked about fascism in really overwrought ways that are super unuseful. Um, and they often, you make moral arguments rather than instead of strategic arguments. I define fascism this way, not because I think other things that people call fascism are okay or good or acceptable or not as bad. I talk about it because it's strategically important to understand how it functions because you can only take it down if you understand how it actually works. And so I think, I think that there's a lot that's going on in that. And then also like people, a lot of these sectors simply aren't sort of committed to the project of undoing fascism. They're doing something differently. And I think when you understand yourself in that way, it has a, a larger sense of urgency to get it right and to do it now. Given the threats that all of this represents, um, what do we what do we do about it? Because the underlying motivations, you know, so a lot of a lot of policy, you can have policy disagreements with someone and you can you can hash them out in in the public sphere, right? Because you can say we share we share common ends. Like we we want to lessen or eradicate poverty. We share that goal. Or we want everyone to have access to high quality health care. We share that goal, but we disagree fundamentally about the different ways, whether we're going to socialize things or we're going to have free markets do it, we can have a conversation because we ultimately share this, the thing we're aiming at. But with fascism and fascist adjacent movements and the, to go back to your basically hierarchy and identity, what they want is fundamentally immoral and kind of untenable in in a free society. They want their categories, however they define it, their nationalist categories, their racial categories, their class categories, whatever it is, religious and so on, they want it to dominate um, and to, to basically form the identity of the nation and to exclude those who aren't part of that identity. And that is – that's not a project that you can like compromise with because anything any movement towards them getting what they want is is fundamentally bad and harmful but that also makes it hard to have like arguments with them right because unlike a free market or arguing with a socialist and saying actually i think this isn't going to lead to what you want it to with them what you're saying is what you want to go to is wrong and you need to give it up which is a harder thing to have a conversation around. And so in a liberal democratic society where the way that we engage with each other is through discourse, um, and then that discourse manifests in policy through voting and so on, how do we how do we push back on these kinds of like fundamentally corrupt both values and aims? You don't. The system is, as described, unable to deal with this entirely. There is no system of policy that can be dealt with this. There's no system of discourse, legislative process, electoral reform, nothing. There's literally nothing that actually addresses this. Because what it does is it capitalizes on the fundamental sort of imbalance in our system, which claims to do one thing yet does another. 
So, for example, like we don't actually have control over the state. Like it's a democratic society, sort of a name only. Like we don't actually have the ability, for example, to get together and vote away the wealth of the one percent. Let's say, like, right? We don't actually have those kind of levels of controls. And so, what we're talking about is sort of being channeled back into a system that does not actually deliver the level of reformability that it promises that it does. And so this actually gives us a much older solution, which is, again, to think about this outside the auspices of the state. How do people solve problems rather than you know, petitioning their electorate? If the electorate is, you know, if the, the, the state functions are unable to deal with it, then how do people deal with it? And people do this all the time. Like, this is actually not that wild of an idea. In fact, you could even make an argument that people do this with most issues in their life, right? They actually coordinate with their neighbors to fix a problem, whatever it is. And so I think that's the way this needs to be thought of um, because the state itself um, and the society and all the economy and the, the leadership and the tradition that it emerges from has these inherent flaws in it. These unchecked assumptions. The only way for the society to be sort of a, a pure democracy that allows that stuff to be worked out in that kind of public square space is, for example, to eradicate um certain kinds of inequalities to look at the fundamental assumptions of society that emerge from colonialism and imperialism, and other kind of long, long systems of oppression. And that's not the place we're in, right? Like we're not here, you know, revolutionizing society, revolutionizing society and building that right at the moment. So instead you have to think about what it is people are owed in this. Do you owe these people a conversation? Um, and what is it most important? So I think the anti-fascist answer, I think, first and foremost, is that people's safety is the most important thing. So protecting people, how you do that, I think, however you need to do that, that's kind of like step one. What I think it sounds almost kind of like blunt to the point of being stupid, but the way that you stop fascist movements is you stop them, meaning you disrupt their functionality. You look at how they work, how they recruit, how they do that, and you break it, not by arguing with them about it. Though you can do that, I, I don't like if you want to, you know, if you have a family member who's so part like a problem or something and you want to talk them out of that, you know, have at it. But you have to break their functionality first, right? You have to make it impossible for them to have meetings and recruit, which is essentially saying make it impossible for them to reproduce themselves, right? You're breaking that functionality. And so this involves a form of large scale community organizing and the way that we have a really long tradition, right? You have the civil rights movement, you have the women's movement, you have the labor movement. You have a lot of these traditions where people get lots of people together and they don't just ask for things. They don't petition them. They force them to happen. This is, I think, the fundamental important thing about what organizing or as people call activism actually is. It is not about stating a case or engaging in discourse. It is fundamentally a battle of forcing something to take place. So if workers are in the workplace and they strike, they are not making a case to their employer that they should have better wages. They're forcing their employer to give them better wages, their existing power. That's what needs to actually take place here is that people say that this is actually so intolerable and that we're not willing to engage in that kind of conversation. And forcing people to engage in those fundamental conversations, it's different than like, you know, what's the best way of applying Medicaid, right? Like that's a different kind of conversation. But whether or not, for example, people of color have lower IQs or not, 
like that is not up for debate any longer. No one's engaging in that conversation. That conversation is long past done. Like it shouldn't have happened in the first place. And we're not willing to even give that airtime. Right. So instead, we're going to disrupt that. And we're going to go outside the norms of the system, acknowledging that the system itself was so flawed that it was unable to deal with that. And so I think that's an important distinction to make here is that I do not think that people will be able to engage in the electoral or legislative process as a solution problem. Now, if people really believe in legislative and electoral reforms, there are things people can do to make the world better. Like that's that's true, right? You could vote for a candidate you like it. That might make the situation better. And that in theory could, um, I think, ameliorate some of the impulses that drive far movements. And far movements are often driven by economic precarity. So if you had a candidate that came in and gave everyone universal health care and we get a couple decades on and people are now pretty happy that they have health care, that actually takes one of the arguments away from the far right. That's pretty good. And if you look at the way that particularly in rural areas, people address like the growth of the militia movement, it's often by giving people resources that the militia movement is offering. You know, so you know, militia movement often recruits in areas where there's no high speed internet and they don't have like ambulance service, things like that. So if you get people those things, they oftentimes don't have a need for the militias anymore. So you can ameliorate that I think in those things. And that's a good long-term project. And it's part of why anti-fascism is not disconnected from other social movements. But we, I do not think that there is a way to channel this just back into that process. Um, and that's a really important point here, because this is part of what makes anti-fascism a radical project, is that it does not actually lend itself over to reforms. It lends itself to actually breaking down some of the systems that have existed prior that don't serve these changes. And it's deciding that your community is going to go outside of them. Um, and that's what's happening increasingly with all forms of social movements, right? That's what mutual aid groups are all about, is that the state and these things are unable to do it. So we're going to go outside them and we're going to do it ourselves. Um, I think this makes some people uncomfortable because it lacks accountability to the public, right? Um, and there's a number of other kinds of uh, disconcerting things, but I think those are questions to be answered in the same way that we answer questions about the state now. How do you make it accountable to the community? How do you make it ethical? Like, what are the ethical questions that you would ask yourself in those situations? You know, um, you can still apply that same kind of rigor, understanding though that you are, I think, stepping outside the auspices of the state. Thank you for listening to Reimagining Liberty. If you enjoy this show, please take a moment to rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. You can also join our Discord listener community and book club by following the link in the show notes. Reimagining Liberty is a project of the Unpopulist and is produced by Landry Ayers.